0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Southern Poverty Law Center, All In With Chris Hayes, Lindzer Denzer on YouTube, Propaganda from Bitch Media, Glad, TED Talks, Back Talk from Bitch Media, and Dan Savage.
1: I'm Tristan Broussard, and I'm from uh, Hathaway, Louisiana. That's where I'm originally from. And but the crawfish fields and one caution light. I came out as gay in like the eighth grade uh, because that was really all I could do at the time. Um, but all my life I've always dressed like a boy, never wore a shirt, always had short hair, cried whenever my mom even tried to put me in a dress or told me to dress like a girl. And I've been on my hormones since I was 18. The day I turned 18 was whenever I could legally do it myself. I graduated high school back in 2011. I moved out, got a job, um, and then eventually I ended up working my way up, starting at like Bed Bath and Beyond for eight bucks an hour, and then I eventually got the job at Tower Loans uh, for fifteen an hour. So I was pretty excited about it. Miss Leah, we sat in a little cubicle, and she was like, I really like you. I'll give you a call, you know, and let you know how it goes. I said, all right. And she said, in the next few days, well, as soon as I left and got on the road, I was maybe five minutes down the road. She called me and said, you know what, you got the job. And, you know, she at one point she told me, man, you're, you, you're very hands-on, you know. Like, just for two days here, you're doing a lot for, you know, how long you've been here. Uh, the manager ends up tapping me on the shoulder. and Like I said, I was expecting him to come. We all were. Um, he taps me on the shoulder, asks me to go to the back with him, and, uh, the other manager, Ms. Leah, so we go to the back, and, uh, first thing he does is he, he slides me, you know, some, a little stack of papers, and I'm looking at him, well, you know, what's this? And, uh, it's a guideline, obviously, of the, the dress code, and, uh, the paper was, said female on it, and I'm reading it, and he's like, you know, I had to talk with the, the corporate, and basically we had to draw a line here, so, he said, if you can comply that, you know, you're female and you choose to dress like a female, then, you know, you can continue to work for tower loans. And if not, I'm going to have to ask you to give us your key back and, you know, go clean up your desk. So I looked at him, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't. And I don't know if that's the hard-headed part of me or just the fact that I know who I am. And I don't need somebody to hand me a rule of how to dress. I know how to dress professional and I was doing that from day one. He was like, I'm sure this isn't the first time you've been through something like this. And honestly, that wasn't very comforting because just because you have the idea that I've been through something like that doesn't mean put it, put me through it a second time, you know. Even like growing up as Catholic, you have um like my senior year we had a it's something called confirmation basically it's like it's like graduating for catholics and i had the exact same problem happen. my dad literally called me out of my room sat me down in the kitchen with my mom next to me slid me a paper and said how are you gonna dress for confirmation because there was a a, a guideline of how you're supposed to dress and females could only wear dresses and that was it a white dress that was it you know and i I looked at it, and my dad actually highlighted where it said female. He said, "You can you do that? I said, no, sir, I can't, you know, and just because I've been this way for so long, and my family knows that, too. Um, and it just kind of hurt that they always expect something else from me when, you know, I'm your child, I should be, you should love me for who I am, you know. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail what happened, but it, it wasn't it wasn't fun, and I had that, flashback again whenever I was sat down again and you know it's just kind of crazy that he brought up to me I'm sure you've been through stuff like this you know it's one thing to go through something from your family and then you try to have a work life and they do the same thing to you. Miss Leah hired me not because of how I was dressed but because how I presented myself and that's the point of a job and an interview and you know uh, and the whole process of of me changing is because I'm trying to be who I am and to have that taken away nobody should have that taken away from them
2: In February, US Congressman Mike Honda of California tweeted out a photo with his transgender granddaughter writing, as the proud grandpa of a transgender grandchild, I hope she can feel safe at school without fear of being bullied. NBC News national correspondent Kate Snow spoke to Honda's granddaughter, Melissa, and her parents about their journey.
3: Her name wasn't always Melissa. She chose her name when she was very young. It just felt right to her.
4: Talking about it's emotional because that's the way we feel about it. A lot of emotion. Um, a lot of it's strong.
3: When babies come out, you know, doctors assign them by what's between their legs.
5: I love these
3: We went with, okay, well, we, this is our second boy. Here we go. And then around 18 months, two years, she just started Sister, Daughter, Pink, Sparkles. She always wanted to role play as the the girl. All her toys and all her presents were always, you know, from the girl section, you know, everything was pink. Her self-portraits have always been with long hair and as a princess, you know, she's always wearing a dress in her self-portraits.
4: It's a hard thing to go through because if you think about it, you want to be supportive of your child and get them and let them do what they want, explore, express themselves. But at the same time, you're thinking, okay, what are other people going to think, right? How are they going to react?
3: In preschool, uh, she was three-ish you know uh, there's imaginative play and there's dresses and purses and things like that and um, her teacher said you know she called me and she says you know there's a conversation I ever heard I just wanted to let you know I'm really proud of her a boy had asked why do you keep dressing up you know as a girl why you always being a girl and she says my mommy said I can wear whatever makes me happy she wanted to wear the tutus and she wanted to wear the belly shoes and we were you know we even said you know Um, oh, you know, I don't think that comes in your size. It was a challenge to get there, to not care about what people thought, to go outside and have her run around as fabulous as she wanted to be, you know, with the outfits that she put together, Um, to be at the store and say, you know, mom, I want the pink shoes. Okay. Mm -hmm. We noticed the moment everything clicked. When she was six, um, it was Halloween and our friend had given her a wig to wear with her um, Halloween costume and she put it on and saw her reflection in the sliding glass and then in the TV and everywhere she turned she saw herself and she just sat up straighter and she started kind of posing and realizing,
5: hmm,
3: this, this matches, you know, she's never had the long hair before. And um, that's kind of when I feel like she she switched over and... One of our neighbors had, you know, we hadn't met them yet and and told Zachary, oh, your sister's such a good big sister because she had helped him up, you know, to get his trick-or-treat candy and she just beamed.
6: I saw the person who I
3: really was. You start to look things up and I started watching TED Talks and I started watching YouTubes. Um, I found some specials, you know, on past um, families who have come out with um, a, a youth that has transitioned, and it all clicked. We finally have a name for what's going on. You know, they didn't understand it first. Then they started to understand
6: and let me be who I was.
4: On our eighth birthday is really when we did the transition and switched everything over. It, it's, you know. Nerve-wracking, right? Because you're not sure what's going to happen, what the response is going to be. But you want to be supportive. Michelle did a great job on, you know, putting together uh, an email and stuff and, and sending it out to all our friends and everybody else to say, you know, this is what's happening. There's no ifs, maybes. This is what's going to happen. You could see the difference. It was almost like a night and day. It was like a release. And when she became who she is on the outside and everybody now recognizing that she felt so much better because now that that weight's lifted, that that stress, that frustration.
3: It hurts to think that she lived so long as someone that she didn't feel she was inside. We never wanted our children to be anything other than who they believe they are. You know, she has a very strong sense of self.
7: I'm actually the same as any other
4: girl. She's a happy kid. And that's the biggest thing that I know I want, is for her to be happy.
3: She has always been Melissa. The only thing that's ever really changed is her pronoun and her name. Um, We tell her, you know, we have pictures up on the wall still. Some kids don't like to see themselves, you know, prior to transition. But she doesn't really mind, because we tell her it's always been you, you know, that's just you.
2: last night we brought you the story of another family of the transgender child five-year-old jacob lemay born with the name mia and now a happy well-adjusted preschooler you can find the full packages about both jacob and melissa on our All In with Chris Facebook page. Talk about the challenges faced by families with transgender children. Joining me now is Dr. Michelle Forcier. She's a specialist in pediatric and adolescent medicine at Brown University, and psychotherapist Jean Malpas, he's director of the Gender and Family Project at the Ackerman Institute for the Family. Um, great to have you guys here. So thank uh, you for having Let's start with this. I mean so kids I have a three year old and a one year old, and with kids and gender is a fascinating thing to watch, right? Because they're learning, they're getting these messages, they're sort of figuring out performance, expectations, and they do different things. They go through periods where they may be um, dressing in a certain way and dressing not. And obviously, there's this trope, right, back in the sort of battle days of um, uh, 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 lesbian and gay children of, you know, this is just a phase, right? Mm-hmm. As a parent, you don't want to be like, this is just a phase, but at the same time, you also don't want to overreact to that kind of pliability in a kid if that makes sense like how do you talk to parents about distinguishing that
8: well, the, the thing that we first do is really welcome the families with an affirmative assessment. We take the time to go back over the child's gender development. And everybody has a very unique gender journey. But we go back and figure out what was the child's preferred play, preferred toys, playmates, claims about themselves, sense of themselves, potential discomfort with their own body or genitals, uh, their sense of gender dysphoria, profound discomfort with the gender that they were assigned at birth. And that really helps us with the parents and with the child to distinguish two different situations. One is when a child is gender non-conforming or gender expansive or fabulous and doesn't fit within the often narrow pink and blue box that right. we have for right. them. Uh, it's not that they want to move from one box to another. Right. They're beyond the box. That's sort of what I... Right, right, right. right. And that's one situation. It's about sort of advocating for the kid, advocating in the school and outside to really help them be who they are. Right. And the other situation is very different, and as we just heard now, is a child who, for several years often, has had a very, what we call, persistent, consistent, and insistent gender dysphoria. A really profound discomfort with the gender they were assigned birth. And they do want to transition they want to be affirmed for who right. they are
2: so in this transitioning process there's obviously a it seems to be a distinction between prepubescent kids and pubescent kids because um, there's uh, the, the biology starts to play a larger and larger role in how people interact with their own gender as they get older what what is a doctor uh, do you do about that situation when when you start to near puberty
9: well the good news is we, we listen to kids And so before puberty, I tell parents, take cues and let your kid lead the way. So if they feel really strongly about socially transitioning, then we see a lot of relief and a lot of increased ability to function and a lot happier kids if we allow them and encourage them and help them uh, socially transition. There are some kids that may not go on to be transgender or may have a different gender identity as they get older in the prepubertal set. And so we don't know. But we don't right. have to know. Because everything is reversible, <laughs> everything is social, everything is hair and makeup and right. clothes right. and right. shoes. Right. So you don't have to decide. Right. In the teen years it's different. That's yeah. So in biology and puberty and I think the gender hormones start to kick in and you can't necessarily avoid being gendered. You can't avoid. The you're changes. making medical
2: decisions if you're going to do something like um, put in hormone blockers, for instance, right?
9: Well, even hormone blockers are reversible. So right, right. Even with that's a good point. Right. Stopping puberty and right. giving people time to breathe and figure things out, it's still reversible. Right. So. In the teen years, it's less likely that they're going to say, "Oh, um, you know, I I really prefer, I really am a boy." They're going to go with their gender identity more than they're going to think about. This is what I was supposed to be, and I need to be Mm that.
2: There's acceptance inside the family. We're we're, we're showing these sort of remarkable. Well, it's not. In some ways, it shouldn't be as remarkable, maybe as it is. Right? Parents loving their kids and accepting their kids. Kind of primary, primary Brave. parental difficult. <laughs> but, right, but the fact of the matter is, this is uh, there are a lot of people who are not at all accepted by their families, or even if they are accepted by their families, there's this social aspect. Um, and that seems like probably more difficult to navigate, at least in this moment in
8: history. Well, yeah, I mean, research and practice really shows that acceptance is protection. I mean, the best way parents want to protect, want to keep a healthy, happy, safe child. And research has shown that protection really decreases risk factors, particularly for self harm and suicide. So, you you know, the best you're way trying to it,
2: protect, you're saying don't do that outside the house because that will keep you safer and it's actually the it's the other way around.
8: Actually, you, you, you have a, the best bet of having really a strong child who can face the adversities huh. in the social world. But we also need to go outside in the school and to support the other environments to really understand these issues and come along Great. and support the kids. Dr. Michelle Forcier and Psychotherapist Sean Mark.
10: What's shaking? Today we're going to be talking about gender. It actually took me some time to get comfortable with my identity as a female. When I was growing up and looking around, it didn't really seem like being a girl was that great a deal. Toy commercials taught me that boys were ambitious and built things, and girls were submissive little weaklings that lived to wipe baby asses. In high school, things got a little bit more complicated. While the other girls were slapping on their lip gloss trying to get male attention, I was taking my stepdad's button shirts and ties and wearing those to school. And I started to notice that the other girls weren't attracted to the same guys that I was. They were starting to go after those buff heartthrobs, and I was going for the Japanese rock stars wearing eyeliner. At one point, I did wonder, am I gay? No. I just like guys that are pretty. It wasn't until I got to my 20s that I realized, I love being a woman. And just because I'm assertive or ambitious or have a deep voice or like pretty boys, that doesn't make me less of a woman. Our culture relies on these ridiculous boxes of categorization. Man, woman, gay, straight, bi. But in reality, these concepts exist on a spectrum.
5: (laughs) I don't fit in the box! Miles, what do I do? I don't fit in the box! There is no
11: box.
10: It's really hard for a lot of people to get used to these concepts, but they're gonna have to, because that's the way that the world is heading. A great thing about the younger generation in this information age that we live in is everyone is asking, Why? Why should I go to college if my graduate friends are all working shitty hourly jobs? Why shouldn't I dye my hair pink when all the richest people that I know work at home, in front of the computer, in their underwear? And why the fuck should I conform to gender stereotypes when 50 years ago, a woman's place was in the kitchen? The more the older generation looks down at us in response to these questions with, uh, because, the more compelled we're going to be to make some changes. The way that society looks at gender right now is not science, it's cultural. In ancient Greece, the men were sexualized, and in a lot of Native American cultures, the women were the brains. If you put pressure on someone to fit into a gender box, all you're doing is asking them to waste their time and energy. And you're throwing them off the radar of the person they're supposed to be fucking. And the moral of the story is... Present yourself in a way that's right for you, and you will be targeting the proper lust market. I wasted a lot of time believing that I couldn't be myself if I wanted to get laid. There are plenty of straight pretty boys out there that aren't interested in the giggle box in the miniskirt. I know. Because I fucked those guys. Don't waste time trying to pretend to be something that you're not. You're doing a terrible disservice to yourself and the person who wants to be with you. Think about all these guys that get married and have kids and start families only to realize later they'd rather be a woman and rip their families apart. Don't be that guy. Be true to yourself now.
7: This story is read by author Kare Mugo, and the piece is called Critical Conditions. It was August 2012,
12: one of those warm summer nights that holds the promise of adventure and the thrill of an open highway. The radio was turned up and left to fill the space between two bodies. An open window let the speeding air in to cool the rider's warm skin. Midnight travelers hopped up on caffeine sped by in trucks. Teenagers in cars headed to the next party, swerving lightly in and out of white lines. Couples stared out at infinite blackness, and, occasionally, each other. It happened fast. A deer leaped boldly across a highway, skirting speed in orbs of light. Seconds later, on the side of a misery highway, AJ Strong lay pinned beneath the steering wheel of his overturned car. A blurry uncertainty hung over the moment, only one thought clear to him. I'm going to die. He'd imagine this moment many times, he tells me. It was one of my biggest fears. What if I get into an accident and they think they're picking up the guy? And they cut my clothing off and realize that I have all these female parts. And that is exactly what happened. Strong was transported to a hospital in St. Louis. There, Strong spent days in an intensive care unit before surgeons could operate on him. Then, another week in recovery. He had internal bleeding, a shattered shoulder, and a broken back that told the story of what happened on that dark highway. He cried as his body was mended back together. But it wasn't just the physical pain or the invasiveness and helplessness that comes with being hospitalized. As a patient, he lost his identity. Inside the hospital walls, he was no longer trans. As he told me, I'd been living my life as a trans man, going by my chosen name for almost 10 years and asking my friends to use male pronouns. And then I get into this situation where who I really am completely disappears. I felt invisible. That person I had been living as, AJ, did not exist in that hospital set in. I became this female who was called by my old name and was treated as such. In the years that followed his accident, Strong began his physical transition through hormone therapy. He legally changed his name and gender, and by all appearances and markers, is male. Still, he worries about what would happen if he was in another car accident. Would his identity evaporate again? Caitlyn Jenner, Laverne Cox, Aiden Dolan, and other trans-identified persons are more visible than ever and are able to speak to mainstream audiences like never before. But what is notably missing from the conversation is a discussion about the barriers that trans people face in getting adequate medical care. A lack of understanding of trans identity, gender presentation, and the community's needs creates barriers to health care on every level, from insurance coverage to conversations over the pharmacy counter to the emergency room. Results from a 2009 Lambda Legal Survey of LGBTQ Persons called When Healthcare Isn't Caring found that almost one-third of trans and gender nonconforming people had been refused healthcare they needed. Another 21% of trans and gender nonconforming people were subjected to harsh or abusive language by healthcare providers. One of the most basic medical needs of trans people is the right and means to physically bring one's body into alignment with one's gender. The mental and emotional well-being derived from this process, along with the benefits of passing as cisgender, like safety and reduced discrimination, are well-known and documented. Yet medical treatments and procedures needed for a safe, informed, and healthy physical transition are strictly guarded by the medical community. Rules and criteria requiring trans people to prove these treatments and procedures are necessary. Yet, medical treatments and procedures needed for a safe, informed, and healthy physical transition are strictly guarded by the medical community through rules and criteria requiring that trans people prove these treatments and procedures are necessary. While these vary clinically, basic requirements usually include a period of ongoing psychological care, proof of a lived existence in the target gender, and in the case of sexual reassignment surgery, letters showing a mental health diagnosis all in order to prescribe sexual reassignment as the recommended treatment. Even when these requirements are met, many insurers opt to not cover hormone therapies, sexual reassignment surgery, and in some cases, the very mental health counseling and evaluations that are required by clinicians in order to meet the criteria for ongoing psychological care that is needed in order to physically transition. So many trans and genderqueer people can't get insurance coverage for the help they need. The medical community also fails trans patients in lack of sensitivity. A.J. Strong, who was in the car crash, is not alone in his experience of finding himself invisible in interactions with the healthcare system. Ola Osaze, a community activist who identifies as a trans-fag feminist, told me, "In many states, healthcare professionals don't understand the community and view us through a rapidly transphobic lens." They either refuse to treat us because, to them, our gender identity, presentation, and markers doesn't align with the kind of care we're seeking. For example, a trans man needing OBGYN services. For these reasons, many trans people simply avoid interacting with the healthcare system altogether, denying themselves much-needed preventive and even urgent care in order to limit their exposure to transphobia. In addition to all this, Lambda Legal reports that collectively, the trans community is much more likely to be low-income and uninsured, and as a result, much less likely to have access to quality health care than cisgender people. They are also more likely to face higher rates of unemployment and work discrimination. Consequently, many trans people make less income than cisgender people or do not receive employer based health insurance. The Affordable Care Act, which included the first federal protection against discrimination in access in health care for trans and gender nonconforming persons, expanded access for many in the community. But as with employer based insurance, insurers do not have to cover physical transition services, requiring people to pay out of pocket for these necessary treatments. That fact is not lost on many who witnessed the glow in response to Caitlyn Jenner's very public transition. She's lucky to have the resources to top-notch medical care to help her transition. The current approach of many doctors to trans identity began in the 1960s after the very public transition of Kristen Jorgensen, a former U.S. Army clerk who sought gender transition treatments in Sweden. After more than two years of electrolysis, hormone treatments, and surgery, she returned to the United States, the New York Daily News announcing, XGI becomes blonde beauty. In the decade after Jorgensen's public transition, there was growing demand by trans people for the same gender-affirming treatments and increased media coverage followed. In 1980, when the American Psychiatric Association added gender identity disorder to its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the treatment of trans individuals and their access to healthcare became concretely embedded within the medical community. Trans identity formerly came to be regarded as an illness that, like any other, required protocols and regulations for treatments that safeguard both physicians and patients except that trans identity is not an illness. The most recent diagnostic and statistical manual issued in 2013 has since removed the mental disorder label, reclassifying it as gender dysphoria. But this association continues to frame how trans people experience the healthcare system. For trans patients, this is significant. Providers are often required by insurance companies to adhere as closely as possible to the DSM guidelines and descriptors on the trans condition in order to ensure patients that are not denied medical coverage for services. The creation of medical experts on trans identity and its categorization as a psychological disorder also informs how politicians, society, and institutions alike view trans individuals. This medicalization of trans identity has meant that doctors, not trans individuals, have defined an entire discourse on identity, one that is based on traditional alignment with society's conception of gender. Parallel with the history of reproductive rights for women, the question at the root of the professionalization of trans healthcare is whether some individuals know what is truly best for them and their bodies. AJ Strong, whose official diagnosis of gender identity disorder occurred before the DSM change, outwardly rejects the mental disorder label and doesn't think it should be necessary to access treatments needed for physical transition. As trans people, he told me, we spend a lot of time building ourselves up and building each other up. And then we go out in the world and have to convince others. The main idea is that we are human, just like everyone else, and there is nothing wrong with us. We are not sick. We are not mentally ill. But then we have to go through the system in order to physically transition. And in order to get our prescriptions, we must first see a psychologist and get a letter stating that we have a mental disorder.
7: was writer Kare Mugo, reading her article, Critical Conditions. Kare is a queer writer from Nairobi, Kenya, who's now living in the Midwest. She likes to tell the stories she thinks should be heard. You can follow her on Twitter at the underscore warm underscore fruit, the warm fruit. And you can share the full article, Critical Conditions, from (laughs) bitchmedia.org.
5: I saw for Western medicine was a friend of mine who showed up to my apartment late on a weekend because of his complications from top surgery. We dealt with his complications, um, but this situation highlighted to me that trans people seeking health care often have a hard time and receive inadequate care, for example, in my apartment late on a weekend because they can't find providers that they trust who are not transphobic. And I decided that I wanted to be one of the people that provided care to trans people that was trans-friendly and um, specific for trans people. I worked at Cal for over five years providing primary care, and during that time I saw thousands of trans patients. Um, and I continue to see trans patients now, mostly in, in Queens and the Bronx. And we'll always do trans care possible. When you think about it, trans health care is not extra or special care that only trans people need. It's actually treatments that everyone has access to but are specifically denied to trans people. For example, postmenopausal women receive estrogens and progesterones for postmenopausal symptoms. Many of the services provided by reproductive endocrinology are often covered even by Medicaid. 19% of trans people refused care any kind of medical care due to transgender or gender non-conforming status, 28% experienced verbal harassment in medical settings, 2% of those people experienced being physically attacked while in the doctor's office, 50% of all trans patients had to explain trans care to their medical provider, almost 41% of respondents reported attempting suicide compared to 1.6% of the general population. Experiences of unemployment, low income, sexual and physical abuse in the home raise the risk for suicide attempts significantly. As a medical provider, I've seen many of my trans patients' lives improve once they've received trans-specific health care. And everyone is capable of that, every medical provider is capable of doing even complicated trans care. If someone can do diabetes care or hypertension care, they can certainly provide hormones for a transgender patients. Mm-hmm. Join us in creating safe, accessible health care coverage for everyone.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Howl.fm. Howl is a brand new app and website that will change the way you think about podcasts. It's a full network of really high quality programs all contained in a slick mobile app for either your iPhone or your Android as well as the web. They've got what you already think of as podcasts, you know, like the archives of WTF with Mark Marin and all of the shows from the Earwolf Network like Comedy Bang Bang, but they also have audio mini series that are really unique. And the one I'm particularly enjoying right now Is hosted by Jerry Minor. He's an actor and a Saturday Night Live alumni. But the show he's doing has nothing to do with his celebrity or show business. Instead, he's creating a radio documentary series looking back on his life growing up as a Jehovah's Witness and his life after leaving the religion. The series is called The Truth with Jerry Minor. The truth being Jehovah's Witnesses' shorthand term for their own belief structure. So they're not messing around, and it's fascinating Uh, to access this. And a whole bunch of other exclusive content on your iPhone, your Android phone, and the web is only $4.99 a month. But when you sign up, you can use the offer code LEFT to get a full month for free, so you have plenty of time to check out all they have to offer. To redeem the offer, make sure to create your account on the web at howl.fm and enter the code LEFT at checkout. So go to howl.fm, that's H O W L.fm, and use the promo code LEFT for a one month free trial of Howl Premium.
11: The first time I uttered a prayer was in a glass stained cathedral. I was kneeling long after the congregation was on its feet, dipped both hands into holy water, traced the trinity across my chest, my tiny body drooping like a question mark all over the wooden pew. I asked Jesus to fix me. And when he did not answer... I befriended silence in the hopes that my sin would burn and salt my mouth would dissolve like sugar on tongue. But shame lingered as an aftertaste and an attempt to reintroduce me to sanctity. My mother told me of the miracle I was. Said I could grow up to be anything I want. I decided to... Be a boy. It was cute. I had snapped back, toothless grin, used skin knees a street cred, played hide and seek with what was left of my goal. I was it, the winner to a game the other kids couldn't play. I was the mystery of an anatomy, a question asked but not answered, tight roping between awkward boy and apologetic girl. And when I turned 12, the boy phase wasn't deemed cute anymore. It was met with nostalgic aunts who missed seeing my knees in the la- uh, in, in the shadow of skirts, who reminded me that my kind of attitude would never bring a husband home. That I exist for heterosexual marriage and childbearing, and I swallow the insults along with their slurs. Naturally, I did not come out of the closet. The kids at my school opened it without my permission, called me by a name I did not recognize, said lesbian, but I was more boy than girl, more Ken than Bobby. It had nothing to do with hating my body. I just love it not to let it go. I treat it like a house, and when your house is falling apart, you do not evacuate. You make it comfortable enough to house all your insides. You make it pretty enough to invite guests over. You make the floorboards strong enough to stand on. My mother... Fears I have named myself after fading things. As she counts the echoes left behind by Maya Hall, Leela Alcon, Blake Brockington. She fears that I'll die without a whisper, that I will turn into what a shame conversations at the bus stop. She claims I've turned myself into a mausoleum, that I am walking casket. News headlines have turned my identity into a spectacle. Bruce Jenner on everyone's lips while the brutality of living in this body becomes an asterisk at the bottom of equality pages. No one ever thinks of us as human. Because we are more ghost than flesh. Because people fear that my gender expression is a trick, that it exists to be perverse, that ensnares them without their consent, that my body is a feast for their eyes and hands. And once they have fed off my queer, they'll regurgitate all the parts they did not like. They'll put me back into the closet, hang me with all their other skeletons, I will be the best attraction. Can you see how easy it is to talk people into coffins? To misspell their names on gravestones and people still wonder While they are boys rotting, they go away in high school hallways They are afraid of becoming another hashtag in a second Afraid of classroom discussions becoming like judgment day And now, oncoming traffic is embracing more transgender children than parents I wonder how long it will be before the trans suicide notes start to feel redundant Before we realize that our bodies become lessons about sin way before we learn how to love them. Like God didn't didn't save all this breath and mercy. Like my blood is not the wine that washed over Jesus' feet. My prayers are now getting stuck in my throat. Maybe I am finally fixed. Maybe I just don't care. Maybe God finally listened to my prayers.
13: This is Lila Janelle. Uh, I'm a writer and a trans woman, and I publish in bitch
7: sometimes. Lila, I'm sorry. We have to talk to you about terrible things. I wish we were talking about uh, wonderful things. But instead, we're talking about uh, Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance getting repealed uh, last week by the voters. Right. And I think what really, what I mean, this is such, what really like struck me about this campaign was just the level of bigotry about this repeal. So Houston is the most diverse city in the United States, and the city put into place an equal rights ordinance last year that would have protected um, LGBT people uh, from discrimination. And then basically right-wing groups ran a really strong campaign to repeal it, and what their campaign hinged on was the phrase no men in women's bathrooms, saying that if if transgender people had uh, anti-discrimination laws in place, then here's how the theory goes. I feel like horrible even saying it out loud, <laughs> but here's how the theory goes. And this is what the campaign was built on to repeal this, was that uh, if transgender people have anti-discrimination laws, then uh, they will go into women's bathrooms and assault cisgender women. So, like, transgender people will pose as cisgender women and then assault women in women's bathrooms.
13: Right.
7: And... This sounds so ludicrous, but it's but it's actually a myth that's been around for, for decades. It's a persistent myth about uh, transgender people that they are, for some reason, like aching to assault women in bathrooms. And so I was hoping you could just sort of talk to us about why this myth persists and what we can do about it.
13: Right. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I was actually thinking about it and, I thought, the movie Psycho is exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. Norman Bates dresses up like his mom, and then he kills a woman in a bathroom.
5: <laughs> oh, my God. And that movie is super <laughs> transphobic.
13: It totally needs to be revisited.
7: <laughs> yeah, so, like, the campaigners in this in this measure were <laughs> basically like, Houston is going to turn into the movie Psycho if you pass this equal rights protection.
13: Right. Yeah, well, it, it was really sad to see because it is just so blatantly hateful, and it was sad to see that people fell for it, there just hasn't been a lot of public discussion about trans people and trans women and the sort of humanizing that maybe took place in the 90s and the aughts for the gay and lesbian communities um, just hasn't had a chance to uh, take hold in our culture for trans people the way it has. It's starting to, but it it was really sobering to see that an idea like this wasn't just swatted down the minute it surfaced. Um, I think, I don't know why people, when it comes to public spaces like bathrooms and locker rooms, that's where it seems to, there seems to be a lot of fights around trans people in our culture and I don't know. Like, I, when I go there, I'm scared because I'm afraid people are going to, like, yell at me. But I'm not there to do anything except what everybody else is there to do. Um, and I wish people could get that.
7: Yeah, there's also, while this case is going on in Houston, there's also um, a public school district, um, I think in, in Illinois, that is fighting to um, keep a transgender student from using the girl's locker room. She's a transgender girl who's a student. And they're fighting, and I think they went all the way to federal court saying, we don't have to let her use this locker room. And so there's just this real kind of fear, I think, that people prey on about those public spaces.
13: And it's so patriarchal too. It's always framed as like, oh no, our women and our little girls are going to be endangered in the bathroom where we can't protect them. And it's so gross, because it's like, you know, you almost think they wish John Wayne would come and make trans people go away, <laughs> or the way that they're talking about it.
7: Like like, like um, a vigilante would ride in from the West and protect the bathrooms.
13: <laughs> right. right. Um, I was talking to a friend who's a trans activist uh, just recently, and he was saying, he's done some of these campaigns in cities before, and the way they fought back against this was just to take it head on, and... So they had community leaders record, you know, PSAs about how this is ridiculous and no one should be saying this and they canvassed with trans people just going door to door talking about their lives and answering any questions that people had. You know, they sent out mailers with trans people and allies saying, you know, I'm not afraid to use the bathroom with this person <laughs> and It sounds like you shouldn't have to do something that elementary, but when the discussion is that low, you have to face it head on. And it seemed like they really just wanted to duck the issue in Houston. And they didn't even frame it as an LGBT rights or LGBTQ rights issue. They kept talking about like veterans and pregnant women and senior citizens, people who already have federal protections. (laughs) They kept bringing that part up instead of saying like, no, Houston believes that LGBTQ people deserve protections and rights just like everyone else. Um, and so I think to make the myth go away, you just have to stand up to it. You know, it's like a bully. and If people don't use their voices to tell the truth about themselves, um, the bully wins like it did in Houston.
7: I mean, like part of me, yeah, I think I, I don't even want to talk about this because it's so, like, it's <laughs> it's so bad that to... To have to to have to say like no transgender people don't want to attack cisgender people in bathrooms. I feel like it's some way like legitimizing mm-hmm. that myth. You know, like is saying is right. having to repeat that, then getting that in people's minds like a like a oh like like that wasn't even on my radar, but now I'm worried about it. But but you, <laughs> but you seen it be effective to to actually address it head on. It doesn't it doesn't seem to legitimize it in that way. No, I mean I think
13: there's like there's a painful moment when you realize, oh my gosh, I am being dehumanized this far and, you know, this is horrible. And, you know, if I was living in Houston, I don't think I would be happy looking at the people in Houston who might have voted against this. <laughs> but I think you have to move past that pain and really just kind of tell your truth. And, um, you know, that's the way change is going to happen. I think people respect it when individuals or groups stand up for themselves and say, like, this is how you need to treat us. You know, we're demanding the same respect that everybody else gets. And I think the absence of that just lets this weird myth grow. Like, you know, I don't know if you saw those, like, the old white guy wearing a shirt that says no men and women's bathrooms. Yeah, they actually printed <laughs> up really shirts out that said angry. no
7: men and women's bathrooms. Yeah.
13: Yeah, and so, you know, if that guy's telling what he believes, we need to tell what we believe, too, or else, you know, there's only one side of the story getting out there. Um, and it's, you know, it sucks, it sucks, that, like, to eradicate this idea that still has, like, staying power long after it should, a fight like that needs to happen, but I think uh trans people and their allies need to be willing to have that fight.
14: Yeah. And I think that um, a, a lot of this work in terms of um, for like cis folks, I think that, you know, like oftentimes when we talk about like racism, uh, it's like we, we say that like it's not the responsibility of people of color to teach white folks like how racism works or how to dismantle it. Like, like white folks have to like work against white supremacy. And I think in a case like this, it's like. Like, we can't expect for cis folks like myself, like, we can't expect trans folks to do, to do all the heavy lifting in, like, eradicating transphobia. And this is one of the situations where, like, cis folks need to, like, really think about, um, how we talk about the issues as well with our, our fellow cis people. And, and, like, it, it, cause we have to also do the heavy lifting. And in a case like this, it's like, um, you know, I feel like a responsibility, even though I don't live in Houston, in terms of like how do we talk about um, trans-inclusive policies that you know like help everybody and doesn't exclude folks. And it's one of those things that when we talk about trans issues, it shouldn't be like a silo thing where like folk trans activists do all the work. Like you know, cis activists have to do just as much work, if not more, because like we're the folks that are like you know, it's within our community that's harboring this transphobia.
7: Yeah, and we also have a level. Of- of safety you yes. know i mean like i can like i'm i'm less likely to be attacked physically or verbally i think if i speak up about trans issues or just in any regard because i'm a cisgender white woman and so i think there's, there's a level of safety there like i can make this argument without having to worry about my physical safety
13: yeah yeah and it, it's it's funny to think about like well what should the messaging be i'm cis and I don't mind going to the bathroom with a <laughs> transfer. <laughs> it seems like, kind of absurd to say, but maybe that is what needs to happen until other people feel like, oh, well, you know, my peers feel that way too. So I should, you know, kind of grow up and, and think of things the same way.
14: I'll try to be gentle when I grow
15: So in 2006, we'd won marriage equality already in just a couple of states, a handful of states, uh, Massachusetts being the biggest and most important one, the biggest victory. And it seemed that after the defeats of 2004, when the Republican Party ran anti-same-sex marriage amendment campaigns in multiple states in an effort to help successfully re-elect George W. Bush, it seemed like the momentum was shifting our way, that suddenly we were winning in the courts, Uh, Marriage equality had been enacted in Connecticut by the legislature. Marriage equality had been passed in the California legislature and then vetoed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, the then governor. But it had passed, and it just seemed like the tide was turning. And there were two big state Supreme Court decisions that we were all waiting for, New York and Washington State. And there was this expectation that we were going to win these and that the momentum would continue to build toward marriage equality nationally. And in... New York, the decision was handed down in 2006, upholding the state's anti-gay marriage ban. And then the same thing happened in Washington state. Decision came down upholding the state where I live, our state's ban on same-sex marriage. And people were deflated and upset. And people worried that the tide, which had just felt like it was turning, was turning again and going back out. And I... Didn't see it that way. In fact, I wrote a couple of blog posts and an op-ed for the New York Times in which I said, we are winning. That even in these defeats, I could see our ultimate victory, our victory coming. Because in both these cases, Washington State and New York, the rationale that the justices laid out to justify these bans on same-sex marriage could be summarized with three words. Straight people suck. In both cases, the justices argued that in these states, liberal states, blue states, that they could ban same-sex marriage because straight people were terrible. Because literally, this is this was their argument: that only straight couples get pregnant by accident. Gay couples, we don't get pregnant by accident. You can't get drunk and adopt one night, right? You can get drunk and get knocked up one night, and so the states needed to reserve marriage for straight people exclusively as an inducement to get these irresponsible straight couples to take care of their children and that if you allowed same-sex couples to also get married that straight couples might be less likely to marry and take care of their children so basically the argument was straight people are awful they get pregnant they're irresponsible they get pregnant by accident and if you let gay people get married too then straight people are going to abandon their children on the side of the road to die straight people suck and i thought in 2006 i looked at both of those decisions and i went If this is the best they've got, that straight people are terrible, we're winning. And we are going to win this. And we did in the end. Which brings us to what happened in Houston last Tuesday. In 2014, the Houston City Council passed the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, or HERO, by a a wide margin, 11 to 6. It was a good vote, good solid vote. The haters, with some judicial maneuvering and assist that was really kind of dodgy, put it on the ballot, forced it on the ballot, a referendum, allowing the voters to to uphold or repeal Hero. And last Tuesday in Houston, voters repealed Hero. It failed at the ballot box. And people have talked about, you know, if you followed it at all in the mainstream media, you keep hearing that this was an LGBT civil rights ordinance. And that's not entirely true. The measure Hero, it did cover lesbian, gay, bi, and trans people. It also covered sex, race, national origin, age, religion, disability, pregnancy, genetic information, family, marital, and military status. It was an all-encompassing equal rights ordinance, and it failed. And the campaign that overturned it targeted, theoretically, trans people. It was all about men sneaking into bathrooms. The haters argued that there's essentially no such thing as a trans woman, that all trans women are, are straight men who want to sneak in, put on dresses, and sneak into women's restrooms to perv out On the women and girls in these restrooms and the haters framed the vote as their campaign slogan was no men in women's restrooms. That was it. That was the argument that they used to successfully overturn hero demagoguing about trans women in public bathrooms. But the argument, of course, was framed as there's no such thing as a trans woman. All these trans women are just faking just straight men in dresses who want to go look at women in bathrooms. Not that you can see much of women in bathrooms. I'm a man. I'm a male. I'm comfortable. I'm a cisgendered man. I use men's restrooms. Uh, women's restrooms, the ones I've heard about, women all use stalls. So you, know, you don't really have an opportunity in a women's restroom to see naked ladies. It's not like a men's restroom where at the urinals you can, if you want to be creepy, look left, look right, and see the head of a dick every once in a while. You really can't see much in a women's restroom. But this campaign wasn't based on any sort of reality. The reality, of course, of women being attacked in women's restrooms is they're attacked not by trans women, but by cisgendered men, as I have documented on my blog. No matter, this demagogic campaign in Houston was successful. They repealed Hero, convinced a majority of voters, the same voters who three times elected a lesbian and East Parker as the mayor. They convinced those very voters by demagoguing about Creepy perverts in women's restrooms to repeal Hero. And a lot of people are really upset about this. Anise Parker is really upset about this, particularly, as she should be. People are picking apart the campaign. But essentially, when you look at what they did in Houston, it's the exact same argument that in 2006, the haters successfully employed against marriage equality. The argument in Houston was straight people suck, not trans people are dangerous. They were arguing that trans people don't really exist, There's no such thing as a trans woman. There's just awful straight men. And that argument, straight people suck. It won the day in 2006 in Washington and New York. It didn't win the war. So we have to keep the defeat in Houston in perspective. It won the day in Houston. It won last Tuesday. It's not going to win the war against LGBT civil equality. We've demonstrated in the successful fight for marriage equality that we can defeat the straight people suck argument it was a long fight, and we lost other battles along the way, but we beat that bullshit argument back. And bear in mind also that the haters used to argue there's no such thing as a gay person either. There were just naughty straight people who were having same-sex sex for the laughs. They weren't really into it. They were just being naughty. They were choosing to be gay. They could just choose to be straight. That was one of the arguments. No such thing as a gay person. Their arguments now, the same. No such thing as a trans person And straight people suck. Those arguments we ultimately defeated in the battle for marriage equality. And we will defeat those arguments in the battle for trans-inclusive LGBT civil equality. I'm not arguing for complacency. We had to fight like hell to beat the straight people suck argument and the gay people don't exist argument against marriage equality. And we're going to have to fight like hell to defeat the straight people suck argument against trans-inclusive anti-discrimination laws but we can and will defeat those arguments. We did it before, we'll do it again.
16: Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington. And this this voicemail doesn't necessarily respond to a particular episode, but I think if you were to look back at my responses to episodes, it would probably match up with the way that I respond to things. Steve Ranella was on a recent episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking about how he was mad at the Cecil the lion hunter guy because of, you know, he does, he's not a huge fan of Trophy hunting, you know, if he shoots a brown bear, he's gonna he's gonna find a way to turn that into some kind of weird chili and choke it down because that's just the way he is, and he doesn't hunt for trophies. But he he can get how some people might do that. He hunts for meat. And on the other hand, he was upset at the lion, uh, at the the people who hated the lion killer because they totally didn't understand how hunting works and how it funds wildlife and how. Wildlife moves on and off of preserves all the time and on and off of private property and doesn't belong to a particular plot of land. That works here in America, too, where there's a wildlife sanctuary, but if there's no fence, the deer just walk off of it on the national forest or on somebody's private land. They, they're permeable. Those lines don't matter to the deer unless there's a physical barrier. But the main point that he was making, aside from these particular details, the main takeaway is he said, I don't feel like I... I know enough about an issue until I'm conflicted about it. And what he said was, until I think, well, these guys are right about some things, and I don't like this about them, and these other guys are right about some things, but they're wrong about these others. Until you have that conflict, until it's no longer black and white, and you're really in the weeds and and actually having to weigh the details, that's when you understand an issue. So when you're saying, this school's discipline is X, you're wrong. And, and until you know the details of it, you probably are wrong. Um, until you feel conflicted about it, you probably don't know much about it. Uh, I always say to people, they don't know me unless they hate something about me, unless there's something about me annoys them. And the same thing to you. And until I know what about you annoys me, I don't really know you at all because you can't be—we can't be perfect matches between anybody. Anyway, I appreciate the show and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye.
6: Hi Jay, John Collin here from Minneapolis. I want to preface this call by telling you that I'm a politically consider myself a politically conscious person. Um, I've engaged in sort of the day-to-day happenings in politics. I'm a progressive I think progressively on virtually every issue, and I try to approach as many issues as I can with that mindset. And the reason for the call it's somewhat random, but I just wanted to see if you or any other listeners could give me some insight into why Amazon is so evil, and again, I I don't have any bias one way or another, and I, see, I, just, I feel like I'm somewhat neutral on Amazon, and I'm trying to think about this, I just haven't really put much thought into it, and I want to know if any of the other listeners, or if you could give me some insight as to why we hate Amazon so much. It's almost like I know that as a progressive, I'm supposed to not like Amazon, but I don't exactly know why, and... I can just say this. This is the the reason the impetus for this is that I just recently used Amazon to purchase an item that I could not, literally, could not find anywhere else. So it's almost like I want to think about, you know, both sides of the issue. Like there is some value that Amazon seems to offer. Right, it enables us as an online marketplace to purchase things and to be, put us in touch with sellers that normally in our local communities we wouldn't we wouldn't be in touch with. So that seems to be something good. And beyond that, from what I can tell, most of the sellers on Amazon are individual businesses. So if I'm a small business, and I don't know what kinds of arrangements are made between Amazon and these businesses, and maybe that's the crux of the problem, but if I'm a small business, I want to put my, my product out there as, as much as I possibly can and the internet marketplace is obviously a smooth way of doing that. And for me, I, and if I'm that business, I don't know who to search for unless I have some kind of a centralized place to go. So Amazon seems like a central marketplace for us to, for us as consumers and for businesses to be put in touch. It almost seems like the perfect market. And so that's kind of what my question is, is because I know you do the the advertisement to use the Amazon banner on your page, which I did, and some of that percentage of that gets cut and, um, and, and goes to your show, which is great, and I did do that this time around when I used it, and I'm not an extensive user, user of Amazon, but just wondering if maybe you are the callers, if there's somebody that has more insight into this. You know, I know there's a lot of corporations out there that... You know, that we have very specific reasons as progressives to, to question and to, you know, and to put in the spotlight as far as corporate behavior and as far as, uh, as far as what they do within the market. But Amazon, I'm just a little confused. I don't exactly know why. And again, I'm not calling to defend Amazon. I'm very open to hearing, if there's a good argument to be made, I'm very open to hear why Amazon is not a company or not an organization that I should support with my dollars. Thanks again for doing the show. It's great. Keep up the good work. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Have a couple of responses to these messages. First of all, to Nathan, uh, I would go as far as to say that uh, being conflicted about any given issue is something that is going to happen a lot of the time, and under Understanding either both or all of the various sides of a given issue is good. It's excellent. Sometimes it's absolutely imperative to really understanding something. I I agree with all that, but the person who was quoting was saying he doesn't feel like he understands an issue until he's conflicted about it, implying that every single issue is worth being conflicted over, because if you hear all the sides, eventually you will recognize that everyone is right about something, and I don't see it that way at all. I, I think that it's good to understand all the sides, but I don't think that means that all sides always have something valid to contribute to the conversation. Uh, so even though that happens a lot, it's certainly not a universal rule. I wouldn't I wouldn't like stamp that down as uh, you know a law to live by. Secondly, today, I'm happy to respond about why we as liberals are taught to reflexively hate Amazon or Walmart or other big box stores or online warehouse stores and that sort of thing. Uh, But certainly, you know, Amazon gets a lot of the liberal ire. And so the caller sounded like he was a little conflicted. And this probably is one of those issues where there's room for conflict. That's perfectly okay. Amazon is not 100 percent evil. That would be ridiculous. And so we'll go down a couple of the, you know, standard liberal talking points. You know, it's killing mom-and-pop businesses. And yeah, you could argue that, hey, it's creative destruction. The economy is changing and not all mom-and-pop businesses can stay open in this new world. And so it's just the natural progress of things. But we all benefit eventually from this consolidation. You know, then that becomes a philosophical discussion about how you want the world to function, but fine, you know, the listener said, you know, he found something on Amazon he couldn't find anywhere else, and so they're not beating out a mom-and-pop shop in that way because the mom-and-pop shop didn't have what he needed, or the mom-and-pop shop could convert from a local neighborhood shop to a seller on Amazon. Sure, sure, sure. Secondly, they're undercutting tax bases all around the country, and uh, the world presumably, you know, they, they Uh, use their size because, you know, they have consolidated so much power and wealth that they can use that size to avoid state tax laws when states try to regulate or tax them. They can simply pull out of that state and, you know, it it becomes a big mess. But, you know, people try to tax Amazon like they would tax any other business working in their state. And so Amazon, Amazon just pulls up stakes and leaves. So that's bad for the tax base because businesses who would have been in that state but are being replaced by Amazon uh, then suck the tax base dry, which hurts society as a whole. Again, you know, you could argue, hey, that's just how business works and they're not evil. They're just amoral and they're just doing what any rational business would do. Fine, fine, fine. Fine. Last one, though, this is the big one is working conditions. Both white collar and blue collar workers at Amazon are famously run ragged. So this is from The New York Times. This article is specifically just about white collar workers. And so it starts out, At Amazon, workers are encouraged to tear apart one another's ideas in meetings, toil long and late, emails arrive past midnight followed by text messages asking why they were not answered, and held to standards that the company boasts are quote-unquote unreasonably high. And when recruiting people, it says on Monday mornings, fresh recruits line up for an orientation intended to catapult them into Amazon's singular way of working. They are told to forget the quote-unquote poor habits they learned at previous jobs. One employee recalled when they quote-unquote hit the wall from the unrelenting pace, there is only one solution, quote, climb the wall, others reported. One worker is quoted as saying, Nearly every person I worked with I saw cry at their desk. And, uh, you know, and it's the problems in the warehouse are about the same as that sort of unrelenting pace in the white collar offices, except rather than being purely, well, mental and physical and, you know, taxing in all sorts of ways, it's sort of doubly physical because the job itself is physical. So they're not just working long hours, and, and they expect a whole lot out of everyone, but they're running around a warehouse, which is sometimes sweltering in the summer, sometimes freezing in the winter, and so on. So this is from uh, the Washington Post about warehouse workers. They were sued, and the Supreme Court recently ruled that Amazon doesn't have to pay for after-hours time in security lines for the workers who have finished their shift— at an Amazon warehouse, they are done, they are off the clock, but they are not allowed to leave until they pass through a security line to make sure they haven't stolen anything, which can sometimes take... 25 minutes or so. So this is from that Washington Post article that says the Supreme Court ruled unanimously Tuesday that workers who fill orders in Amazon.com warehouses need not be paid for the time they spent going through security checks to ensure they have not stolen any products. The court reversed a lower court ruling for the workers who allege they spent up to 25 minutes waiting to go through security clearances at warehouses in Nevada. But Justice Clarence Thomas said federal law requires that workers be paid for activities before and after the shifts only when the activities are, quote-unquote, integral and indispensable to the job they are hired to perform. Quote, the Court of Appeals erred by focusing on whether an employer required a particular activity, Thomas wrote, continuing, the integral and indispensable test is tied to the productive work that the employee is employed to perform, unquote. And the way I see this is, it's not about whether Amazon was technically right according to the law, but the fact that when given a choice between having a compassionate policy that suits the workers' needs, like letting them spend the last 20 minutes of their shift standing in the security line so that they actually get paid for their time, versus a policy that works to squeeze every ounce of value out of people who may not have any other option other than to, you know, just take it or to look for other unskilled work in a down economy, they always opt to squeeze people for all they're worth from the top of the company to the bottom, the way it seems. And again, I don't know, maybe that's not Amazon's fault. Maybe that's just the natural result of existing within a capitalist system that requires publicly traded companies to squeeze people in that way. But that still backs up the argument that one should shop less, buy things used on places like Craigslist or buy them new from local independent stores whenever possible before opting to shop at a place like Amazon. I mean... The internet is a great medium for a marketplace, I agree, uh, but companies do not have to act like Amazon acts. Uh, Etsy, I think, is, uh, you know, they seem to be a decidedly non evil company that has created a massive marketplace online, and I have used them myself to buy a couple of things that I could not find anywhere else online or off. Had Amazon had what I needed, the workers involved in getting me that product would have had a much worse time than the individuals that I worked directly with through Etsy, just as an example. And now, what we've all been waiting for, the first two inductees, uh, volunteers, to the public wall of gentle shaming and encouragement.
16: Hi, Jay. This is Kyle from Vancouver, Washington, requesting that you publicly shame me until I support your show. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
3: This is Shell from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I am working at the time and listening to your climate episode. I'm a little bit behind. And you were talking about the shaming idea for people who have intended to get memberships. I've been listening to you for three or four years now and absolutely love the show. I'm one of those who has every intention of signing up for a membership and have not done it yet. So go ahead and shame me and I don't know. I love your show. Keep up the great work, as everybody always does. And that's about it for tonight. Later.
0: First of all, thank you and congratulations to Kyle and Michelle for having made your first steps towards membership. This is huge. And this is your friendly reminder. If you're in a position to sign up for a membership right now, then do it right now because you know if a couple of minutes goes by you're gonna forget. Uh, so you've taken the first step. Now it's time to follow through. If you can't do it right now, try this memory trick. I just made it up. Think of something you'll definitely be doing later today while you're at home, and you know, at a time when you could sign up. Maybe brushing your teeth before bed. That's that's like a good universal thing. So imagine this as clearly as you can, what everything looks like in as much detail as possible. Now. You're looking into the mirror as you brush your teeth. You look away for just a moment, and when you look back, you see someone has written in lipstick on the mirror, become a member. Think about that and get that image stuck in your head. And now, when you go home and you actually brush your teeth tonight, that memory of the lipstick note in your mirror is going to pop to mind. And right then, with your toothbrush still hanging out of your mouth, go to one of your internet-connected devices, navigate to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com, and You'll be all set. I hope that helps. Uh, Thank you again, and you're welcome. If you too would like a little help remembering to sign up for a membership you've been meaning to get, or you want to share a a memory technique that you like, that you think could be of use to those struggling to remember to become members, uh, just call in and either pledge your support or give your advice and encouragement at 202-999-3991. If you can't be a member or you simply don't want to, that's totally okay. I get it. I'm just here to help those who can and want to. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, thanks to those who support the show, of course. By becoming a member or making one-time donations, that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode.
6: One, two, one